6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Poetical Books. Well, we are entering hour eight of our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, and this session is going to address the poetical books, as they're called. It's going to be a very different session. We've been in historical books, narrative type books. These are very different. The books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Very, very interesting books. Now, Job, of course, deals with the mystery of suffering, or at least that's the way it is you know, commonly viewed. And it's the oldest book in the Bible, by the way. The oldest books are not by Moses. Uh, the book of Job was classic literature even in the days of Moses. Probably written some, something like uh, 2000 BC, maybe even earlier. There are lots of studies. Some associate Job with Jobab, the son of Joktan in Genesis 10, but those are conjectures. There's a lot of debate exactly how far back he goes. But in any case, it is regarded, the book of Job is regarded as a literary masterpiece. It actually consists of very highly developed poetry. In fact, Victor Hugo called it the greatest masterpiece of the human mind. Well, you got that almost right. It's not of the human mind at all. <laughs> the book of Job, it's actually a dramatic poem framed in an epic story. And the first part of the book lets you in on something Job didn't have the benefit of. You need to understand as you read the book of Job, you, he, didn't ha he did not have the benefit of chapter 1, because what happens in chapter 1 is a prologue where Satan challenges God. Job didn't know what was going on in heaven. Following that, we have the dialogues, and there are actually four. We'll talk about three of them, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Nabathite. And there's a fourth guy that's kind of a strange guy. Many people are puzzled by Elihu. I'll show you why later. And then the final part of the book is the divine response. We have a prologue. That's Satan's challenge. You need to understand that sets the stage, but realize Job didn't know that. And then we have, and he goes through all these troubles. And the bulk of the book are these dialogues where these three friends, I'll put friends in quotation marks, discuss his predicament. But then God Himself steps in and answers for Job and to Job with a very remarkable passage. So, the prologue. Now, we first see Job in his piety in prosperity. He is very wealthy. He's got flocks. He's got wealth. He's got family. He is in great shape. And Satan uses that to accuse him. Satan goes before God and spreads his lie and his maliciousness by saying the reason he's so pious is because he's so rich. Take away his wealth and so forth, and then see what happens. So God allows that to happen. And we see Job's piety in adversity as these things start to go against him. 
He doesn't lose his commitment to God. He gets to his point where even his wife says, curse God and die. And though he slay me, yet will I trust him, is Job's response. Satan continues. Well, sure, he's still, but he, you know, let's take away, his, take away his health. So we see his piety in adversity, but then his piety in extremity. He finally loses everything. He's regarded as the greatest man in the East. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, and 500 she-asses. So he was very prosperous. Satan's the god of this age, right? Understand, Satan is real, and he's malevolent. He's against your best interests. In any case, finally, Job loses not only his wealth and his family, his sons and daughters get killed, seven sons and three daughters get killed, but he also loses his health. He's on, he's on a trash heap. He's in bad shape. Then what constitutes the bulk of the book is these three friends that come and advise him. And every one of his friends, the arguments are valid, but they're not true. So with friends like that, you don't need enemies. A couple things, some insights in that early chapter. Satan is accountable to God. He can't touch Job unless God says, okay. Satan can only do things that God allows him to do. Every harm that comes to you is Father filtered. It's interesting that Satan's dark mind is an open book to God. Satan has no secrets from God. Satan is also behind the evils that curse the earth. What's very clear as you study your Bible, the evils that are in the world are accountable to the God of this world, which is Satan. He's what it's all about in terms of evil. By the way, Satan is neither omnipresent nor omniscient. He has locality. He can't be harassing you when he's harassing you. In other words, his minions might. He's got resources. But he personally is a created being. He's not some kind of God. He is a very powerful angel uh, that's gone bad. So he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Uh, I don't believe he can read your thoughts. He can implant thoughts in your mind, but I don't think he can read. Only God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, the Scripture tells us. That's important to know. And Satan can do nothing without divine permission. Everything that happens, he has to go to God for permission. It's interesting also that God is always on his own. Little boy asks his dad, very nervous about something. He says, Dad, does, does God see me all the time? As if he's trying to hide something. The father very quickly says, God loves you so much that he can't take his eyes off you. Isn't that a great answer? I love that. So the dialogues constitute the bulk of this. Job's in this predicament. And we have three guys, and each guy gets three cracks at him. Three, three d discourses. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time analyzing them. But Eliphaz basically advises Job based on his own observation experience. He concludes that Job suffers because he has sinned. They assume all these troubles are brought upon him because of his sin. That's basically their theme. Bildad comes along. And his primary argument is on tradition. And he concludes that Job is a hypocrite. It isn't what it seems. He somehow isn't as pious as it looks. Zophar comes along and he rests on assumptions of orthodox dogma. Job is a wicked man. These dialogues are different only really in their subtleties. 
But they each take three attacks at him, and he responds. And that's what constitutes the bulk of the book. You finally get to this fourth guy, Elihu has sort of a different approach. See, all three of these guys preceding have too narrow a view and too rigid a view of God's providence. They don't have the understanding that God is big and has lots of different means and methods. But Elihu comes along, he, he, he sort of throws you because he's apparently a young man. And that, you, don't, you, know, you don't think of wisdom coming from a young man, but he, he believes that uh, he, uh, he's sort of a very respectful intercessor on behalf of Job. And he has a higher view. He thinks suffering may have a higher purpose than they're allowing for. It may be, this may be moral rather than penal. This may restore rather than requite. This may chasten rather than chastise. In fact, he really sets the stage for God himself stepping in and answering for Job. When God does step in, he rebukes the first three speakers. He rebukes them. That they, uh, they, they don't know what they're talking about. He doesn't come in Elihu. There are even some scholars that think Elihu could be an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. I don't go that far. But clearly, Elihu sets the stage. He's sort of an intercessor, sets the stage for God's appearance. But the divine response, you know, there comes a voice from a whirlwind, and God gives Job a science quiz regarding the earth, the heavens, living beings. He even talks about dinosaurs. Land dinosaurs and sea dinosaurs are mentioned in Job. Many people don't realize that because of all the silly speculations from commentaries. Don't read, the, don't read commentaries. Read the book and see what it said, talks about these things. And then there's the epilogue after he gives Job the sort of science. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He talks about some interesting things we'll get here in a minute. That the epilogue, and then God rebukes the, the so-called three comforters. And then he restores to Job double everything he lost. There's a little surprise in that one, too, I want to get to. The scientific insights, you know, there are at least 15 facts of science that are suggested that were not discovered until recent centuries that are in the book of Job. It's an interesting passage, chapter 38 and following. One of the things that emerges out of all this is that the planet, the scientists have discovered, is uniquely designed for life. In fact, they call it the anthropic principle. It's as if the planet was designed for man. If the planet was a little bigger or a little smaller, life would be impossible. If it was a little close to the sun, a little further. If you try to build a model of the universe as we know it, you'll discover there are literally hundreds of factors that if you change them just a little bit, life's impossible. Forces and weights and ratios are all delicately designed. Example, people say, gee, the ozone layer, if it changes one-tenth of one percent, cosmic doom comes. Turn that coin over. If it's that delicate, who balanced it? You see, each one of those arguments is an argument for design and also skillful attention. Some of those factors have one part in 10,000 different, and life's impossible. The nature of water, the water molecule, you go on and on and on. The, the so-called anthropic principle, it's a whole study in its own right, very fascinating. The other thing, the flip side of that is also the absence of scientific errors. You will not find any In the Bible, you will not find scientific One of the amazing things is it doesn't have scientific errors. The, some of the silly folklore of the past doesn't creep in. Except maybe idiomatically some places. But. The hydrological cycle is a, a simple example. Evaporation, circulation, precipitation in Job 26. How, why do, how do clouds stay aloft? Water is heavier than air. 
How do they stay up there? Air, wind, so forth, have weight, right? Water weighs more than air, so how is it supported? You'll find the answer in, in uh, Job 28, among other places. There's also the space-time mass of the universe. We now know the properties of space. Empty space is not empty. It's got energy and so it has properties. It has, any radio amateur tell you it has impedance. It, it has properties. Empty space has. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangeth the earth upon nothing, Job says. What? Hangs the earth on nothing? Well, we know that to be true today, don't we? The morning stars singing at the foundation of the earth. That's kind of interesting. They were created before the foundation of the earth. And these dinosaurs, that's another thing. People are fascinated with dinosaurs. You know, the land-based dinosaurs are represented by the behemoth in Job 40. It's not a hippopotamus. There's all kinds of conjectures. They don't fit the text. These are giant creatures. They're well described. If you, read, if you, if you don't have in your mind trying to fit this to something we know, and just listen to what the text says, what you'll see is a dinosaur with a big tail that knocks things over and is huge, and, by the way, here's the, here's the one, breathes fire. Breathes fire. Now, that's bizarre. They have found skulls of dinosaurs that have chambers. They don't know what they're for. There's just a conjecture, we don't know, a conjecture that they may be very similar to the bombardier beetle, which mix, mixes two chemicals to throw fire. And we know, especially in Eastern Asia, there apparently has been a history of fire-breathing dinosaurs. That's what are called dragons in China and the rest. They had an ancient history. But there's also sea-based dinosaurs mentioned in Job 41, the Leviathan, and it talks about it. And it's interesting that these things may still be around in rare situations. In New Zealand, in 1977, some Japanese fishermen picked up this creature it was 900 feet down. It was 32 feet long, weighed 4,000 pounds. Here's a picture of it. They didn't have the capacity to keep it. They took pictures of it and threw it back, but it's been well documented back in 97. And there have been others. This is just one that I happened to get a picture of. There are a number of these. Uh, Kent Hoven, his ministry, a number, have all kinds of information on not only dinosaurs, but even contemporary encounters with them. Well, let's talk about astronomy. God asks, where is the way where light dwelleth? You know, light's dynamic, darkness is static. God says to Job, can you bind the influences of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? That's God's challenge to Job. I was quite startled to discover from an astronomer friend of mine who pointed out that the constellations of the skies look like groups of stars, but obviously they're not real. Some are way very, much further away, some are close. They just have a, an appearance that looks like they're not really necessarily clustered. There's only two exceptions. There are two constellations that, in fact, are gravitationally linked. The Pleiades and the belt of Orion. How did Job, or the writer Job, know that? God challenged him. Can you bind the influence of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? He knew. See, these are the only visible eye constellations in direct gravitational bondage. And they're mentioned in Job chapter 38, verse 31. In fact, the whole Matzeroth, what we call the Zodiac, are signs of God's plan of redemption. That's quite an ambitious thing to get into. I won't get into it here. But you'll discover the 12 signs of the Zodiac, if known by their Hebrew names, 
portray the 12 tribes of Israel, and they also portray God's plan from the virgin birth, represented by Virgo, to the victory of the lion of the tribe of Judah, which we call Leo. All this gets corrupted in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, but they, they believe that uh, Adam and maybe the earlier Enoch and the others taught their children the plan of God by memorizing these stories. What you need to know of the stories is not the arrangement of the stars, that, that's silliness. Cassiopeia, the woman chained in the chair, that's just a bent W. How do you get a woman chained in the chair? These aren't pictures. There are pictures associated with the stars, but the way you know the story is not by the picture. You need to know the names of the stars in the order of brightness. That will remind you of the story, and the story is pictured, but it's not by the arrangement of the stars. You follow me? That's corruption. If you learn the names of the stars in, in Hebrew, uh, you'll discover some astonishing things. And there's a whole study on that called the signs of the heavens, but we'll move on here. Let's get to the Psalms. That's Israel's hymnal. It's actually poetry laced with strong theology. There's a lot of theology in, in the Psalms. You know, it's interesting how today's music is different than the old classic hymns. You know, the classic hymns have, were just rich with theology. The Psalms are rich with theology. In the Hebrew, the word for the book is called Tehillim. It's uh, praises. There are 55 of these that are addressed directly to the chief magician. They were intended to be sung. In the Greek, the term of the book was called psalmoi, uh, which is a poem to be sung to a stringed instrument, or a psalter for a harp or stringed instrument. And it's out of that that we get the English word psalms. But in any case, the nature of poetry. See, we're used to poetry that's phonetic in its design. We have rhyme, which involves the parallelism of sound. There's also a parallelism of rhythm or meter, parallelism of time. There's also the, the conceptual design of, the, of poetry can also involve the parallelism of ideas. And that's especially true of the book of Proverbs. And uh, these parallelisms can be comparative to illuminate something. They can be contrastive to be antithetic, in other words, opposites or they can be completive, to be synthetic. Also, throughout the Psalms, you find some interesting words. You find the word selah. Some people speculate that that's a musical term. No, it's a pause intended for you to connect some ideas that may not be obvious. Sometimes synthetic, sometimes antithetic. It's concerned with truth, not tunes. Interesting issue. Sources of the Psalms, 73 of them are assigned to David. About 50 of them are anonymous, and there's a number of others to various people. His, his choir director, Asaph, the kid, his choir director, and a few other guys here. Uh, even one to Moses, by the way. Some people classify the Psalms into five categories. There's a group of uh, Psalms that are about man. They sometimes call it the Genesis book. There's a group of Psalms that have to do with deliverance. They call it the Exodus book. Some people do. There's also a whole group of Psalms that are deal with the sanctuary, Levitical, some people associate it with. There's another group of unrest or wandering, so they associate with numbers, and there's the final word of the Lord. Uh, and so th some people try to cluster these hymns in those five categories. I mentioned just so you're aware of it. I don't happen to see them that way, but that's okay. Uh, many of them have inscriptions. There's 34 without any inscriptions, 52 with simple inscriptions, 14 with his that tie them to history, specific historical incidents. There's four that are inscribed with a, denoting a purpose. There are 15 that are called Songs of Degrees. I'll come back to those. And there's 31 special ones for the 150 songs. And there's a whole bunch of terms I won't go through, but there's a whole bunch of terms all through here 
that most scholars assume or believe they're somehow related to the execution of the music or dancing or their technical terms for stringed instruments or uh, various other issues. So, but those, I might warn you that scholars are very much uh, still in a debate on what some of them really imply. But in the book of Habakkuk, we find a psalm in the book, and it also teaches us some things that may surprise us. The psalm has, in Habakkuk, has a superscription, something in front of it, in other words. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon the Shigenoth, which is a, a, like crying aloud. It's an exclamation. It ha- then there's the psalm itself. From ver- this is all in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, from verse 2 to 19. Then the end of that, it says, to the chief magician upon Nigenoth, which is on stringed instruments, is what it apparently means. But what's interesting, these superscription and subscriptions here betray a pattern that we didn't realize for many of the Psalms. We'll discover that many of the Psalms, the inscription is not really the superscription of the following Psalm, it's really a a tale of the previous one. See, there's some translational uh, difficulties here. And Hezekiah also has a Psalm in his book, Hezekiah 38. The superscription is the writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he was, had been sick and was recovered from his sickness. It's up front. Then there's the psalm itself for ten verses. And then the subscription. Therefore we will sing my song to the string instruments. That pattern is consistent in Habakkuk and Hezekiah. And people are beginning to realize that maybe that's the way the psalm should have been. And these subscriptions and inscriptions are, are, are maybe misascribed. Now the songs of degrees is in Psalms 120 to 134. And it's sometimes called the ascents because there's 15 steps and they sang these as they went up the 15 steps. That's one view. Um, Hezekiah was the most godliest of Judah's kings in 2 Kings 18. He wrote many psalms and proverbs, ones even in his book. He restored temple worship in 2 Chronicles 29. And in fact, he was given 15 additional years to his life by God. And that was confirmed to him by he going out and looking at Ahad's sundial, a monument that was nearby, and seeing that go back 15 degrees, as what God's confirming that he was going to get 15 more years. And many people associate that with the 15 Psalms that call the Psalms of Ascents. And so there's that, that at least tradition about it. But the most interesting group for some people are the Messianic Psalms. There's a handful of them. The book of Psalms is, the, is quoted in the New Testament more than any other book of the Old Testament. The things that are in the Psalms constitute irrefutable testimony to the divine inspiration of the Scriptures, because it lays out details well in advance of the facts. Psalm 2, 8, 16, 22, 23, 24, 40, 41, 45, 68, 69, 87 and 89, 102, 110, and it goes on and on and on that are labeled Messianic Psalms, because they embody some prophecies that are fulfilled in the life of Christ. His person, the fact that He's Son of God is mentioned in a half a dozen of them. That He's Son of Man in Psalm 8 and following. Son of David in several places. His offices as prophet in several places. As priest in Psalm 110. As king in Psalm 2 and others. We'll look at Psalm 2 in a minute. The fact that He would speak in parables. That He would calm the storm. That He'd be despised, rejected, mocked, whipped, and derided. All expressed in the Psalms. That He'd be impaled on a cross. In fact, it's so graphic it sounds like it was dictated first person singular as He hung on the cross. That he'd be thirsty, the wine mixed with gall, they'd cast lots for his garments, and that not a bone would be broken, they would fulfill the Passover specifications. 
that he'd rise from the dead, he'd send to heaven, that he'd be the right hand of God, that, he, that he's our high priest, that he'll judge the nations, he'll reign, his reign to be eternal, he's the son of God, the son of David, that people would sing Hosanna to him, that he'd be blessed forever and come glory in the last days. And it goes on and on. These are all in the Psalms. You could build a whole presentation of Christ from the Psalms. The coming kingdom in Psalm 46 through tribulation. The range of the kingdom in Psalm 47 and all the earth. And the center of the kingdom. Psalm 46, 47, 48 speaks of the kingdom. It's coming, it's range, and it's center. So we see design here. The shepherd psalms, we're all familiar with that. The suffering savior in Psalm 22, hanging on the cross. The good shepherd, analogous to the good shepherd discourse in John 10. The living shepherd in Psalm 23, we've all heard that. The great shepherd in Hebrews 13 is a parallel. The exalted sovereign of Psalm 24, 22, 23, and 24. And as the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4, and so on. Psalm 22, is just, let's just take, we'll take a couple of these, take a quick look at them. It opens up, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That all echoes in our ears is that one of the first things Christ said on the cross, right? Eli, Eli, lama thabachthani. It's interesting that David is penning this. David was never in any danger of crucifixion. He was never in any extremity in that regard. How did he get inspired to write this? It's almost as if it was dictated while Jesus hung on the cross. Crucifixion was invented 700 years after this was penned. It was invented by the Persians. That's what Haman, what says hanged in your translation is wrong. He was impaled. The Persians did that. The Romans really adopted that and used it very widely, obviously. See, Israel's method of execution was stoning. How did he get this insight? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. These taunts are virtually quoted, as you find them in Matthew 27, verse 43 and 46. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Heavy stuff. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them, and they cast lots upon my vesture. That's only it's quote of Matthew 27, verse 35. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>